So I wonder if you've had this conversation. Maybe it just happened last week when you were talking about inviting someone to Easter or any time around the water cooler when something about a spiritual conversation comes up, the, the new kind of buzzword. It's an entire category. I'm told that it's on dating apps even. I'm not on a lot of dating apps. But the language is something like this. Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I have, a, I have a spiritual belief, there's something bigger going on, but, but I don't partake or participate in any of that religious mumbo-jumbo, right? Maybe you've heard a celebrity talking about this, maybe it's been kind of on the ups and downs with everything that you've heard, people saying it, it's somewhat fashionable, somewhat in vogue right now to say, well, I don't subscribe to any one set of beliefs, but I merge them together for my own kind of spirituality. I found a couple quotes of some actors, maybe you'll recognize these. The first one is from Ron Perlman. He says, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. I have my own relationship with a being that I consider to be everywhere, all and everything. I don't need a church or a synagogue or a mosque. I don't need to kneel down. I don't need to stand up. I don't need to be hanging from a thread. How about Josh Gad, everyone's favorite Olaf? I really love the traditional aspects of Judaism. My wife is born and raised a Catholic, and I enjoy celebrating those rituals as well. I am very spiritual, but not in any way religious. No. Even Pope Francis. It is not necessary to believe in God to be a good person. In a way, the traditional notion of God is outdated. One can be spiritual, but not religious. It is not necessary to go to church. For many, nature can be church. Some of the best people in history did not believe in God, while some of the worst deeds were done in his name. This is fascinating communication, right? There's a a category now being invented that says that we can believe in something bigger and greater than ourselves. We can subscribe to the idea of a God or of a spiritual being that is all and everything, all-encompassing, and yet we can leave out the pesky religious parts, the parts that really require anything from us, the parts that we don't like. In other words, right, I'm spiritual, but... I'm not religious. And then my question is this. So then, if you're spiritual but not religious, what do you actually believe? What do you actually subscribe to? What can you put your finger on as something that's steadfast and true that you can put your weight on? I especially think about this in times of this isolation, right? This quarantine that we're in. How do some of those loose ideas actually hold up when the cards are down, when life is difficult? We knew that things were on the rise in our culture even before this pandemic. Loneliness was an epidemic well before we got into this social distancing and self-quarantining and isolation. On top of that, right, people have been pursuing their own God and what that seems to lend to is a diminishment in community. We'll talk about that here in a little bit, but first let's define our terms. So when I say the word spiritual, what comes to your mind? Turn to the person you're sitting with. Say the first word that comes to your mind if you were to define spiritual. Maybe type it in the chat. Let us know what's going on. What words come to mind? Maybe you think supernatural. That's a good one, right? Things that aren't quite natural, easy to 
define. Maybe it communicates some depth to you, right? A spiritual person, a spiritual experience has some deepness to it. Maybe you think about an enlightened or meditative state when it comes to that word spiritual or a spiritual reflection exercise. Maybe you think of things like spirit, like the Holy Spirit, and that prompts you to remember some of the faiths or tenets of Christianity. Let's see if we can unify these things together. Spiritual is unseen. Right? We can't see it or touch it. We can sometimes feel it or experience it, but we can't point at it. Only its effects. Spiritual is undefined. We don't all have the same working definition for what is spiritual. Right? It's filtered through kind of our own unique view, our own experience, how we view the world. Right? Spiritual is somewhat nebulous. It can mean different things to different people. While nature might be a very spiritual experience for you, all I think about is bugs and spiders crawling all over my skin. Not spiritual. Not spiritual at all. For the same reasons, I consider a church, a worship center, to be a very spiritual place. But if you've had a different experience, perhaps a church worship center inflames visions of, uh, of violence or fighting or not belonging, then maybe that's not a comfortable experience for you. Right? Spiritual is an undefined term. It's unseen as far as what we experience with it. Ultimately, I would say that spiritual is unknown. It's unexplored. It's out there. I can believe that, but this catch-all spiritual term could mean anything. It could mean Christianity, it could mean Judaism, it could mean Neo-Buddhism, it could mean that you believe in crystals or whatever makes you feel good sleeping at night. The bottom line is that spiritual is an undefined, unregistered term. Now let's define the other part of our equation, right? Let's define religious. What comes to your mind when we say that word religious? What images does it spawn? While this may not be your definition, let's see if someone who's defining themselves using this term, what might their takeaway be from this idea of a religious experience? I think all in all, religion is strict. Someone tells you what to believe, and then you have to do it in order to agree with them. Religion is restrictive and forced, while spiritual feels more open and free. Religion is oppressive. Right? Religion puts people down. Historically, it does horrible things. It doesn't feel like it might be about enlightening or spreading life, certainly not in tune with this new wave spirituality that we're addressing. Third, religion, unfortunately, I think, conveys a fair amount of guilt. When we talk about organized religion, things like church or coming together as a community, there's something about acting in a way that we should act, and yet we know that we don't live up to that standard. That creates a shame, it creates a guilt, it creates a weight on us. And so rather than figuring out how to live within that system, we would rather just pull the eject button and refuse to be a part of a religious community at all. And again, in this day and age, we can do that by saying, well, we're spiritual, we have beliefs, I believe in something bigger than myself, I just don't subscribe to all of those religious ideas. What do you think? Would you add anything to those terms? Anything to spiritual or religious or maybe how they work together? We'd love to invite you into the conversation. Type it 
in the chat. Let us know if we're on the right track. I think we are. I think we can agree to some of these loose terms defining these two ends of the spectrum for what we're going to be talking about. But I think the problem is that then these two terms become opposites. It leads to a, to a schism, to a chasm, because while all of those statements about religion and spirituality may be true, they also miss large points on both sides. For instance, if we accepted that definition of religion that we just talked about, I don't think I would want to be a part of a religion, certainly not a church. I would want to step away from that and say thanks, but no thanks. But I also don't necessarily want what spirituality is offering either. I don't want my tiny brain deciding what's true universally. I don't want my own experiences being the loudest voice that dictates how I see and understand the world. If I'm going to believe in something greater than me, then I want to do it as a part of a community with other people who've gone before me. I want to wrestle with like-minded people so that we can define this indefinable being, this all-creative person and purpose. I, I think that's a bit of the fallout that we experience. In rejecting a skewed understanding of religion, people have isolated themselves in their own belief systems, and we suffer a lack of community for it. Because if a person's individual values are to persevere in a religious community, then we have to find ways to navigate those conversations. Or else we feel the religious oppression and guilt and opt for the easy breezy spirituality. But by coming together as a community, we learn to do things, humanly speaking, that we were created to do. To compromise, to grow, to learn, to understand, to put language to these deep parts of ourselves that have no words. And by the way, this isn't just in churches. We can document across a cross-sector of our world today that volunteer organizations that require a commitment are down. Whether they be side hobbies and sports leagues, there's been a documentation or at least some thoughts about bowling leagues and how bowling leagues are in crisis. Why? Because I can bowl by myself. Why instead would I show up on a certain day at a certain time with a certain group of people who I might get in fights with, who I might not get along with? I'd rather just do it on my own. We see this across the volunteer sectors. Any type of leadership uh, organizations are finding diminishing commitments, whether they be Kiwanis or Lions Club or scouting, all because in this pursuit of individuality, we cover over community. We choose ourself and we build things in our own image instead of subscribing to the larger community view. So community identity. Identity suffers as we all pursue our own version of God, our own spiritual reality. This isn't a new problem either. Paul in Acts 17 addresses a very similar thought process happening when he's in Athens. Let's take a look. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this 
I am going to proclaim to you. A shrine to an unknown God, right? The Athenians were very well practiced in religion. For the sake of not confusing terms, let's assume that word could be spiritual, right? Everything had a spiritual correlation. There was a God of thunder. There was a God of water. There was the God of the economy and the God of love. And so they covered all their bases by making sure that everything in the spiritual realm was happy with them. And if they didn't know which God to pray to or they didn't know the specific one, then they made an altar to an unknown God. In other words, hey, we just want to make sure that everything is covered with our spiritual view of this world, right? They were very spiritual people. They connected everything in that pursuit, even when it came to not necessarily knowing who or what they were worshiping. They were fine with it being undefined so long as all the bases got covered, right? Paul says, I'm going to step into this gap and I'm going to educate you about the God that you may not know. I'm going to take your undefined spiritual reality and I'm going to give it definition, right? In other words, Paul says, look, you don't have to live with a nebulous spirituality. You don't have to live with an unknown God or an unknown faith. You can actually know. You can know the spirit that hovers over the water. You can know the life that is connected to everything. You can have a connection with the divine wisdom, the divine Brahman, whatever new age term or word you might want to use. Paul said 2,000 years ago, and it echoes true to today, that we don't have to let spirit be undefined. We can define it, we can know it, and we can trust in that reality. Paul writes as much about the contrary point of this when he's writing to Titus some years later. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 16. He says, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Right? Spiritual people claim to know spiritual truths. That's where those terms like depth and meditation, right? Spiritual people tend to know things or think they know things in the spiritual places. Paul says, don't buy that lie, though. Just because you can rattle off some spiritual mumbo-jumbo doesn't mean that it matches up to what's actually true in the world and in our time and in eternity. Paul says, look, there's a difference between people who say that they know God, who say that they're spiritual, and those people who actually put those things into practice, who have a defined spirituality that they can put weight on that supports their beliefs and is logically consistent with their experience, but also the experience of the world and people around them. So let's up our understanding of religion. I understand all the terrible things that have been done. The atrocities of the past from the Holocaust to the current things that are even happening in the United States and churches as well. To any bad story you've seen on TV about money laundering or swindling or profiteering from the gospel, I give you all of those points. I don't try to fight or argue for them or say that they're in any way okay or allowable. I do want to just fight for the case, though, that perhaps our thoughts about religion or other people's conceptions of religion are missing out on so much of the truth that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Right? Religion is defined this way. 
a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Paul Tillich, a famous theologian, would describe it this way. Religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of life. So a different way, or perhaps a better way to approach this question would be to simply ask, what is your ultimate concern? What's the thing that preoccupies the most parts of your mind? When you're alone and you have time to let your mind wander after the kids are asleep and it's just you, you've got some free time. You may not have any in this season, I understand that. But remember when you used to, where do your thoughts drift? Do they drift to paying the bills, making sure that you have enough money to go around? If so, then your religion becomes the work that you do to serve the God, which is the provision for your household. Maybe you dream about that next vacation, the escape, the getting away. Maybe you get all consumed with what that calendar looks like and how you're going to pay for it. Then Your God might be recreation and your religion becomes the behaviors that you do to meet up with that. Maybe your thoughts go to your family, your kids, sporting events, all those kinds of things, and you find yourself dwelling there with every free moment and all your free time. Perhaps your God then would be your family and your religion becomes the calendar that you have to maintain in order to pursue that which is your ultimate concern. Again, there's a myriad of categories here from hobbies to work to special interests to things that just take up your time and concern. But the point being that we find meaning and we ascribe meaning in these things that are our ultimate concern where we pay our most attention to. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians where he's writing about sexual immorality and marriage and how this should all work for the church. He has some really profound ideas that surround that argument. Let's take a look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord." Now, disclaimer, I'm not saying this so that you can kick your partner to the curb and say, sorry, honey, scripture says that you distract me from God, and during this quarantine season, you may feel like doing that. That's not what the point of this scripture is, nor is that what I'm advocating for us today. Paul was looking at this through the lens of the fact that Christ was returning like tomorrow, and so his actions uh, convey that he was asking people to live somewhat zealously, recklessly for the Lord's second coming. We have the benefit of some thousand years of history. We know that having a marriage and physical relationship is important for the life that God has called us to live, and the point that I want to make is beyond that. 
The point that he's simply trying to make and that I do want us to understand is that anything that isn't God ultimately pulls our attention away from God. And if that's our ultimate concern, if that's our highest place where we find the meaning of life, then we should police and relegate the things that draw our attention away. And to Paul's point, right, our spouse does indeed pull our attention away from simply being spiritual all the time. Right? I can't sit in a prayer closet and pray 24-7 because I have a wife and a family and a house and a job to consider. None of that is bad. Actually, it's very, very good for a holistic, well-rounded church that is involved in the affairs of the world. His simple point, though, is that there are things that distract us from a larger spiritual reality. And if that is our ultimate concern, then we have to guard those things that pull us away from God, from our faith being that ultimate concern that Paul Tillich talks about. But I want us to focus on his opening and closing statements. Let's read those again. He says, I would like you to be free from concern." Right? His ultimate point here is freedom. He says, look, I, I want you to not be encumbered by things that would pull you away from that, which is the most ultimately important. And then he goes on to describe this situation. But his close in verse 35 says, I'm saying this for your good, not to restrict you, but to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. So, in other words, a spiritual person who becomes enlightened or awakened or learns about these spiritual powers find themselves then adapting their life to live in such a way to reflect that truth. Once something is known, then we live and structure our lives around it. Even if it's unknown and spiritual and nebulous, if it rises to that level of our ultimate concern, we should expect it to influence our actions. In other words, a religion begins to crop up, a system of behaviors that show that we subscribe to a particular worldview, a particular belief or thought pattern. And while religion may have been reduced to some of these life-stealing tendencies and some of the horrible things that exist, the reality is that at some level all of us are religious which I guess would be my main rebuttal to this line of thought. I'm not sure that you can be spiritual without also being religious. Because in your pursuit of the spiritual reality of that ultimate concern, you wind up finding yourself building this thought process around it. And there's no way that you can build on those things in isolation. It takes a community of practice, like-minded people around you to be able to come up and out with those thoughts and ideas. Or else your religion, your spirituality is self-serving. You become your own God and then you craft the world around yourself to benefit that experience. So spiritual but not religious may mean, look, I believe in something greater, I believe in something bigger than me, but, but I'm not going to let it change my life or have any impact on the actions that I take or the life that I live. I can be spiritual and believe in that without it affecting my day-to-day -day life. After all, my ultimate concern is not the spiritual being out there. My ultimate concern is me. And lo and behold, your religious experience reflects that. But here's the honest conversation. I don't think we can necessarily point fingers at this line of thought. 
Well, we may not use that language spiritual, but not religious. We may use the term Christian or Christ follower or practicer of a particular religion. But nonetheless, I think the truth in the midst of that is the same question. Is the God that we profess our ultimate concern? Are our lives structured that way? Does our thoughts about God and spirit and eternity and all of those things rise to the level of being our ultimate concern, the things that guide our lives, the things that we think about when everything else kind of falls away? Right? If I'm honest, in a lot of areas, it takes me a lot of work to shift my concern off of myself, off of my own thoughts, my own happiness, the things that I want to pursue and achieve in this world. Right? It takes a fair amount of work to make that transition. And in this quarantine season where maybe we've all got a little bit more or different kinds of free time to think about these bigger, broader questions, I wonder how much of those questions are being answered by more things that we can do, checking off a to-do list, providing things. And I wonder how much we're asking the question, what does God want with this time? What does God want to unveil in the midst of this Season. If that's our ultimate concern, if that's our spiritual worldview, our religious undertaking, I wonder how much it takes for us to actually ask those questions, right? What would you do during quarantine if God were directing your steps? The Netflix, Netflix queue is getting empty. I wonder what God might add to your to-do list about working on in this season. It might be something like silence, solitude might be something like reading or carving out family practices that include a faith element to it. Maybe he wants to work on your prayer life. Maybe he wants to work on dethroning whatever rival God is in place in your life. Be that work or hobbies and sports. Be that things that you do on the weekend or even people in your life. Perhaps in this season of financial uncertainty or at least uncertainty about the ups and downs of the economy and our world, God wants to invite you into a place of stability and trust in him instead of in what you can provide with your own hands. So how about you? I wonder where you fall at on this spectrum, whether it's that personal look into how you're managing this quarantine space, whether or not you would ask God if he would have you spend your time differently or to invest in things differently or to perhaps find yourself doing things that you don't normally do because the opportunity is at hand. Regardless, I think when we start to deconstruct this idea, as much as I want this to be about pointing the finger at somebody who believes differently than me and recruiting them to my side, I find just as much of a reflection back onto me. Where in my life do I claim to know the truth but don't live that way? Where might God be asking me to do better, to find myself knowing him more and then following after him in everything that I do, because I think that's kind of the point that we're after, right? Spiritual, you may have some knowledge of a higher power, but you probably don't know him. Religion, Christianity, offers us the opportunity not only to know God, but to know him well, to serve him, to love him, to let him speak to us and guide us. And that's, I think, what makes this ultimately worth it. So as we pursue this idea over the next couple of weeks, I wonder what thoughts come to your mind. 
the things that you're processing, the things that you're doing about how your own activity, the actions that you take, say about what is your ultimate concern, what category you find yourself in. Are you spiritual? Are you religious? In a good way or a bad way? And what ways might God want to step into that to make himself known to you? As we close today, Paul has uh, a blessing that he gives at the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, and it's so in tune with what we're talking about that I'd like to leave you with this prayer today. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. My prayer is that you would receive the, the spirit of wisdom, that you would know him better, not only through his revelation to you, but through his power and his divine glory in every area of your life. Before I let you go, I just want to highlight some announcements. Last week, we had the drive through Easter egg hunt. A number of people drove through, gave us some feedback. It was a little windy, it was snowy on Sunday, so if you were there on Friday, you definitely had the advantage for the count. But the official count for our drive through Easter egg hunt was 567 eggs. 567. So our puts our winners at Ryan and Elizabeth and Cannon Crable. They came in at 579, closest to the number. Uh, Jeanette and Tom Perry with Alicia and Ariana came in at 585. Jackie and Tyler Francis with Addie, Emmy, and Joe round up third with 526 eggs counted. We're going to have an Easter gift basket available for you later this week. We'll reach out to you specifically uh, to let you know and to pick that up. For everyone else, thanks so much for participating. Um, I hope we don't have to do that next year. I think that's appropriate to say. Uh, hopefully we'll be back to our regularly scheduled Easter egg hunt and uh, we'll look forward to that. But thanks for letting us try something new. If you're looking for a way to grow, I just want to remind you that we're doing virtual life group Wednesdays at 8 p.m. The link is on uh, a, for, a Facebook porch event, and uh, we just meet Wednesdays at 8 o'clock, talk a little bit about how we're doing, get the opportunity to see some faces by a video chat, and we'd love for you to join us. Last but not least, if you're looking for ways to give, uh, we actually updated our website, so if you're having trouble with it, please go to porch.church backslash give. Uh, if the porchchurch.tv site isn't working for you. Porch.church backslash give if you're looking for that link. We're also trying to put out like a food pantry in front of our building for people who may have need, and we're looking for a, a cabinet, maybe a little bit weatherproof or one that you wouldn't mind not coming back in the same fashion in case it rains or snows. Trying to find ways to provide for the people in and around our building. So if you have, first of all, a cabinet, something that we could hold the food or hold dry goods items in, reach out to us and let us know. Uh, Will at theporchchurch.tv, uh, or if you'd like to participate by donating items, email me too. Once we have it up and running, we'll reach back out so you can bring in your items. That's what I've got for you for today. It's been good seeing you. Thanks for joining me for worship this morning. Hope you have a great week. Be blessed.